If you would take your scriptures and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, we'll be reading the entire chapter. Ephesians 4, would you give ear to the reading of God's word? I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who has descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the treachery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things, into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body from the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Who being past feeling, having given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth in, is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with its neighbor for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole still no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that is what, that is, what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart truth to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. May God add his blessing 
to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you who have created the world and everything in it, you who sustain all life and redeem your people, you sent your only begotten Son to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lord, hear our prayer. Bless us with your grace. We come before you to hear your words of life. You are our hiding place, Lord, and our shield. We hope in your word. Grant unto us this morning ears with which to hear your word and hearts that can understand it. Help us to take the words of this passage this morning and apply their message to our hearts and lives. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. We're talking about unity through service. Last week, we spoke of the gifts of leadership Christ has given to his church. We looked at those gifts. We saw why they were given to the church. Each one was given for the purpose of building up the church, the body of Jesus Christ. For the helping of our growth in unity around the word of God, then we saw the goal of this building up to bring the church as a whole to maturity. We saw that the function of ministry through the offices given by Christ was to bring the members of the body to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We also saw the way this end was to be accomplished in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. My friends, this should bring great excitement to your hearts. This is a testimony, a testimony of what your future as a believer holds. It is a greater and greater knowledge and understanding of the work of Jesus Christ. No, you have not yet arrived at the point of understanding all of it. But the promise is that for all who will turn away from their own sinful and selfish ways, they will diligently seek to know the gospel message in Christ and in Christ alone. Thus, there will be a continual growth in understanding. You need to understand that all Christians begin this new life as babies. This is a very clear teaching from the scripture, but one we often conveniently seem to forget. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.2, 2, as new babes Desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. In the church today, the church growth people tell us that we need to put new converts immediately into positions of leadership to make them feel apart. That is much like electing a two-year-old to the board of directors of a business. I love my granddaughter, and she's about two, but I wouldn't elect her to any position of authority. They say we can justify putting a new Christian who has been successful businessman on our session. After all, running the church and a business is that is not that different. Oh, but it is different. One who has just been born does not know the ways of the world. One who is just born spiritually does not know and understand the ways of God. We must understand conversion is not an end unto a means. It is the beginning of a new life. We must not believe the lie 
that salvation is the end of the story. Man is not made complete at, com at conversion. He has only started on the road to maturity. If we fail to understand that this Christian experience is a new life, that it is a trip into the understanding of God's word, then we will be fatally trapped into a terribly destructive lie. We will miss much of the truth Paul teaches throughout his epistles and we'll find ourselves involved in much of the confusion of the present day church. Let me explain. In the epistles to Timothy and Titus, Paul talks about the Christian novice, the new Christian. He speaks of the things they should not do and what they should not be asked to do. In 1 Timothy 5.22, he tells Timothy, do not be hasty in laying on of hands. Don't be quick to ordain someone. In Titus 2.6, he speaks of teaching the young to be self-controlled. If we examine what is going on in the church today, we find the cry is, get them involved immediately. What should we be doing with the new believer? Teaching them the truth. That's what they need. They need to grow in their understanding of God. Teaching them obedience to God's word. Helping them to grow in maturity. Preparing them to take on a role of service. Never forcing them into what they are not yet prepared to handle. In these verses, we have just read, Paul lays out for us a deeper understanding of how we are to approach service in the church and how that service can facilitate unity. First, he deals with, that, with the danger involved in not being prepared to take on this service. And there is a great danger. Second, he gives an answer to how this can be accomplished. And third, he shows the results that flow from holding to God's standard. The whole purpose of these gifts of leadership to the church were so all members would be brought into the mature body of Jesus Christ. The reason for bringing them into maturity is laid out for us in verse 14. It says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Why? Why? Why should we be careful about placing new Christians into positions of leadership? Because as children, they do not have a deep enough understanding of the truth to sort out the truth from the error. The scripture is full of warnings about this danger. Jesus in Matthew 7:15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. In Matthew 24, 23 through 26, he warns, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Now this is absolutely amazing to me. That here in these verses, words spoken and written 2,000 years ago is a warning to us about the two largest cults of our day. 
the Mormons who claim Christ came to the American desert, and the Jehovah Witnesses who claim he has already returned and is hiding in secret chambers for the right time to be revealed. But these are not the only two dangers Christians face today. They are all those who would teach that believers become God, which is the same era Adam and Eve fell into. They are those who say, once you're saved, you can live like you want to without any responsibility. Then there are those who want to convince you that the church has all the answers. Just join and do what they say and you'll be all right with God. How can you avoid all these errors? There's only one way. You must study and you must learn the word of God. The truth that comes from him. Please understand. Studying God's word will prepare you to spot errors. You don't study the faults to learn the truth. You must grow in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. How can you do that? By having your ear attuned to God's word, by hearing the voice of the Good Shepherd. How do you know I preach the truth? You can only know by study of God's word. Compare my words to what the scriptures say. The place you have to begin your Christian walk is with the understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture. We hold to the sufficiency of the Scripture. It is infallible, inerrant, and complete. Many in this day have taken up the cry that they have the Holy Spirit and he gives them words of truth. Listen to what the Scriptures teach concerning the Holy Spirit and the truth. John 16, 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He listens to the Father and gives you what the Father says. In the Gospel of John 15, 26, Christ says, This is the Spirit. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify of me. In 1 John 4, 6, we hear these words. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The Holy Spirit was sent to open your ears, to open them to hear God's word, and the apostles and prophets were sent to give you a written record of God's word. Evangelists, pastors, and teachers were sent to guide you in a proper understanding of God's word. All of these are centered in the proper study of the word. The true test of the spirit is what place do they give God's word in what they teach. It requires some maturity to be able to handle the proper study of God's word. Paul says those who have not yet developed these skills will be blown about like a piece of paper in the wind. Therefore, they need guidance and direction for those who are more mature. Our world today is a more dangerous place than even the Apostle Paul's day. There is no more error than in Paul's day, but the packaging of that error has greatly improved. We are inundated by a continuous flow of false doctrine. 
One thing every bit of this false doctrine does is try and take the focus off of Christ and place it on man. Don't just listen to see if they talk about Christ, but listen to see what they say about him. This is a great danger to all believers. Paul says this can happen by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Unregenerate men are always seeking ways to deceive those who are seeking salvation in Christ. The scripture is full of warnings about false teachers and prophets. You must ever be on your guard. You must understand Christianity is a religion that requires you to think and to study. It requires you to listen and apply the truths of the scripture to every situation you face. Don't take any man's word as truth until you have proved his word by the word of God. There are two great enemies any ministry has to face and be able to deal with. The first is departure from the truth, compromising with the lie. The other is indifference to those being ministered to. In the preceding verse, Paul has laid out the great danger that faces new Christians. Both of these enemies, departing from the truth and indifference, are at work in developing this danger. Here in verse 15, he gives an antidote to both enemies. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Not only do these enemies both work to destroy the new Christian, they work very effectively together. How many times have you seen someone start to question the teaching of the pastor? They don't go to him. They don't discuss it with him. They talk to everybody else about it. They begin to throw doubt on his ability to teach. They aren't giving good, solid scriptural reasons for his error. If they had, such they would probably just go to him. After they have planted doubt about his qualifications as a teacher, they begin to question his love for the people. They dig up every incident anyone can remember where someone got mad at him and make it a case of him being mean to them. You can see in this the two-pronged attack against the church, the truth, and against his love for his people. Who does this hurt the most? It injures those who are new in the faith. Those Paul warns can be blown about by every wind of doctrine, those who are most susceptible to the schemes of men. How are we to deal with these attacks? He says, don't listen to these evil schemes, instead speaking the truth in love. The truth he refers to is God's truth, the word of God. We are to be students of God's word, studying it constantly and for guidance in living our lives. That's the only place we can find what will do us right is in the scripture. The one thing the world does not want is an absolute authoritative standard. Whenever anyone begins to question the truth, here we have to be careful with our language. Questioning is a part of study. Remember Habakkuk? Habakkuk questioned God in his actions. And God allowed him those questions and then graciously answered his question. 
However, whenever anyone denies the absolute authority of the truth, that causes problems. We live in a society that has accepted relativism as the foundation of knowledge. Relativism sees only actions between two individual entities, and thus what is true in one set of entities is not necessarily true in another set. That kind of thought means there can be no overarching standard such as God's law. Therefore, to question God's law or judge his law is always wrong. We must hold his law up as the final word on anything. Relativism says everything is relative, thus the truth is constantly changing according to the circumstances. This is what Paul is warning about in verse 14. The truth of God is just like God himself, unchangeable, immutable. Paul says we must always speak the truth regardless of the circumstances or the reaction of those hearing it. The truth is going to do one or two things. It's either going to draw people to it or it's going to push them away. Relativism is the great compromiser. It tries hard to mediate the effects of the spoken word. If telling someone they're a sinner offends, relativism says, well, we'll change the word to they are sick and can't help themselves. When caught in a lie, relativism explains away the lie with the thought that you aren't looking at it from the same perspective as the liar. If you could see it from his point of view, you would see it was true. The only way we can fight this kind of thing is by constantly and without prejudice speak the truth as we have learned it from God's word. Paul adds to the speaking of the truth that it must be done in love. Here we really find trouble. What is love? The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love. He laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Real love is expressed for us in Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ came into this world. He came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Live his life perfectly according to the truth. Then he gave himself for us. This means he made a commitment to us to do even more for us, to die the atoning death on our behalf and to win the victory over the forces of evil we could never win. This shows that love is a commitment. Nothing more and nothing less. Paul says we are to speak the truth with a commitment. The trouble comes when we decide to take the world's idea of what love is instead of God's. Many have made this verse, Ephesians 4.15, their favorite verse. They tear it from its context. And they say, you have to always speak the truth in love. The only problem is their definition of love. Love has come to mean for far too many people never saying anything harsh always telling people what they want to hear to make them feel good about themselves. There's no commitment in that kind of love at all. You can see it in the marriages of our day. 
someone gets a little discouraged or down about how their life is going, they believe they have fallen out of love. Some even apply this to God and say, if you sin after you're saved, you lose your salvation. Where's the commitment in that? Philippians 1.6 tells us about God's commitment and what it means. Listen to it. Being confident of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a commitment. Love is a firm, unshakable commitment. So to speak the truth in love means to tell them what God's word says and then help them to grow in understanding that truth. When you see someone sinning against God, go to them and speak the truth in love. Telling them what they're doing is wrong and that they need to repent. Anything else would be relativism spoken without the true love of God. What's the reward of speaking the truth in love? But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. There's only one way to grow up into Christ. You must be committed to the truth of his word. You must speak the truth in love. It will not be easy. This world does not want to hear the truth. They will label you with every nasty word they can think of if you hold to the absolute truth of God's word. Don't look to be called successful in this world if you choose to hold to the truth. You will be persecuted. It will not be easy, but there's a great and glorious reward waiting for each and every one who will hold to the truth in love. That reward is Jesus Christ. In Revelation 22:12, 12, the returning Christ says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, and I give to everyone according to his work. He means that he will give them himself according to how they are committed to him. Jesus came into this world to love his people. He committed himself to their every need. He will return for those who have out of love and appreciation for him and what he has done for them, committed themselves and their actions to him. Christ is your reward. What does Paul tell us will be the results of this type of life? Verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every joint supply, whatever joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This verse should have the greatest convicting power of any of most any passage in the Bible for believers. We're we're inundated inundated with church growth literature telling us how to go building the church. Paul takes the idea of church growth and does something totally different from what most do with it today. He first, in verse 15, makes clear that it is Christ who is responsible for the growth of his church. How does God make his church grow? He does it through the faithfulness of his people to his word. Christ is the sole head of the church. He is the one in authority over the church. 
He is the one who prepares the course of action the church should follow. Therefore, it is quite clear that the only way for us to assure proper church growth is to be faithful to his word. He says, from Christ, whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. It's Christ. It's Christ who calls his people to come out of the darkness of sin into the light of God's glory. It is Christ who paid the price for the sins of his people. And it is Christ who holds all things together by the power of his word. What we see in this is that our God is sovereign. He is in control of all of the affairs of men, both saved and unsaved. He is the one who is building his church. You must understand, while God is sovereign and working out his own plan, you as a believer still have responsibility. What do you, what do not, we do not do any works in order to earn from God anything. Did you get that? We don't do anything to earn from God anything. We do works that he prepared in advance for us to do out of a deep sense of appreciation for all Christ has done for us. Listen to the last of verse 16. According to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. The church grows. The church builds itself up. Believers come together into groups which are called local churches. They come into these groups in order to have fellowship with one another as they collectively worship God. In these groups, they have responsibility to encourage, support, and assist each other. You are to be using the gifts God has given you to help build others up in their understanding of God's work on their behalf. Yes, this is done in love. Not the messy emotional Hollywood idea of love, but the strong commitment idea of love shown in the scripture. Love cannot happen until truth has been established. Love cannot exist apart from truth. A commitment made without honesty is no commitment at all. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the one calling people to come into the church. He is the one who enables them to be a part of by giving them gifts to use in the church. However, it is the believer himself that must, by listening and studying, grow in his understanding, and then by doing his part to help others make the church stronger. Is your church weak? Is it embattled by truth deniers and indifference? If it is, then the first place to start searching for the reason is in your own heart and life. It is this willingness to search yourself that is the result of God's work in your life and in the church. It is when God's people begin to search their own hearts that the church will really begin to grow. It is then that it shows forth a great power in the changing of its own community. I am afraid the weakness of the churches in our nation comes from this very thing. We have grown lazy in searching our own hearts and have brought into the world's idea of relativism. When Solomon was dedicating the temple, he spoke to the people about this very thing. 
He said when God's people found themselves weak and out of touch with God, there was something they could do. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. When was the last time that you stopped and searched your heart in the light of God's word? Do you not understand this is your duty? All believers must be constantly searching their own hearts. We are all children when it comes to our faith. We are called to examine ourselves, to look for growth. We are called to hear God's word and obey its teaching. We are all called to help one another to be working at growing ourselves and assisting others to grow. Why? Why? Because this is the way God said we would find our unity both with him and with each other. I hope you will look at your service to the church differently from now on. that you will see your membership as a gift to God and to your fellow believers. It is a precious gift, and it is a gift that must be found in your heart if you name the name of Jesus Christ. Please, search your hearts right now. If you find you are given of yourself to help the church grow, are you doing it? Are you giving of yourself right now? Then redouble your efforts, for there is no greater calling in this world. If you do not find you are involved in the work of the church, which is the spreading of the gospel message, then give ear to hear this word of truth spoken in love. Jesus Christ came to redeem from sin all who would hear and believe on him with a broken and contrite heart. If you're not involved in helping his church to grow, you cannot be called one of his for his people will hear his voice and will obey. But there is hope. All you have to do is acknowledge yourself a sinner, lost and without hope, and call out to him, and he will hear and will save your soul, and he will give you a desire in your heart to be a part and to serve in his great and marvelous body. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come thanking you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, for his enabling and calling us as his children. We thank you for his perfect life, a life lived on our behalf, a life that filled the complete law for us. We thank you for his sacrifice made on Calvary's cross, for his atoning death that paid the price for our sins. We know we know we have nothing we could offer to deliver us from the spiritual death we were born into. We thank you for Christ's resurrection victory, a victory we have no power, no weapons, and no courage to fight for ourselves. Thank you for our Lord and Savior who has secured salvation for all who will hear and believe in him. Amen.